The AAAS is an amazing mixture of top-line researchers and of writers, including, I was delighted to see, David Barron, who often used to report for The Science Show. He lives near Denver and loves eclipses, especially the one in 1878 that helped put US astronomy on the world map. David, your last book, American Eclipse, we talked about it a while ago, and you said something came out of its publication. What? It has been turned into a musical for the stage by a Broadway composer lyricist. And I have to say, my great hope is in 2028, when a total solar eclipse goes over the Sydney Opera House, I hope it will be on stage there. What a brilliant idea. <laughs> so pass that along. If anyone hears this, American Eclipse, which is a true story of a total solar eclipse that crossed America's Wild West in 1878. It stars some great historical figures, Thomas Edison, who was in the West for that eclipse, a female astronomer, Mariah Mitchell, who was the greatest female scientist in America at that time. They will sing for you on stage if you come see the show. Isn't that amazing? Yes. It'll rival one of my favourites, which is something that performed in a primary school, in other words, a junior school, and that is in the northern part of Queensland, and then it came to Sydney. It was E equals MC squared, the musical. <laughs> and each of the people behind each of the letters was on stage, performed by a 14-year-old or something. This musical about the eclipse of 1878, I think, is very creative, but that sounds even more creative. <laughs> the kids get to know who the scientists are. Okay, someone played Einstein, who is the usual kind of caricature, but knowing about Emilie du Châtelet or Madame Lavoisier and various other women who were helping their male scientists produce the preliminaries for this famous equation, e equals mc squared, really was a wonderful thing in schools. And your eclipse interest took you to Australia recently? Indeed, I was, you may recall, there was a total solar eclipse in Western Australia. It only crossed land in one spot, and that was Exmouth. And I was among the hardy group of eclipse chasers who traveled all the way to Exmouth. The total eclipse lasted 56 seconds. I had to travel all the way from the United States, and I have to say it was worth it. It was just spectacular. Why was it worth it? Well, so that was my eighth total solar eclipse that I've seen. And a total solar eclipse is just the most awe-inspiring sight in all of nature. As I like to put it, it's the closest thing to space travel that you can experience without leaving the surface of the Earth. Because we think of a total eclipse as something's hidden, the sun is hidden, but what's important is what's revealed. During a total eclipse, the blue sky gets stripped away. The blue sky keeps you from seeing what's overhead. But when the blue sky gets pulled away, when the moon moves in front of the sun, you can actually see the solar system. You can look with your naked eye at the sun, because you can see the sun's outer atmosphere. You can see the planets flanking it. For me, it's like mm -hmm. you've been transported to another planet. And I don't know whether they talked about it very much when you're out in the West, but in fact, the previous time when they'd done that, I think it was 1919, thereabouts, trying to confirm Einstein's theory and there was observation being made in three different places, but the one in WA was the best, but it was still a bit uncertain. And so the one that was done later in the 1920s was the one that absolutely confirmed Einstein's ideas about relativity. It was interesting. Well, total eclipses 
have been, since the 19th century, really important for scientific discovery. And this connects back to Einstein. Back in the 19th century, there was widespread belief that Mercury was not the closest planet to the sun. It was believed there was another planet between Mercury and the sun, and it was given the name Vulcan. But it was so close to the sun, scientists believed, it would be very hard to see because it would never be in the sky at night, and you can't see it in the daytime because it would be lost in the sun's glare. About the only time you might catch a glimpse of this hypothetical planet would be during a total solar eclipse when the moon blocks the bright surface of the sun. Well, in 1878, the eclipse I write about in my book, American Eclipse, one of the chief aims was to look for the planet Vulcan. And one of the main characters in the book and in the musical, a guy named James Craig Watson, thought in 1878 that he found the planet Vulcan. And for a little while after the eclipse, he was hailed as this hero. Now, you probably can guess he was wrong. There is no planet between Mercury and the sun. The reason he was wrong is because of Einstein. The Newtonian mechanics breaks down when you get near a very massive object like the sun. And Mercury's orbit doesn't make sense based on Newtonian mechanics. It does make sense based on Einstein's general theory of relativity. And when Einstein's theory was proven correct at that eclipse in the early 1900s, Vulcan vanished. There was no need for Vulcan anymore. In fact, you can't have a Vulcan because now Mercury's orbit actually matches the equations. And your next book, Mars, coming out end of this year, perhaps, who knows? Well, so I so enjoyed writing about the history of astronomy in my book, American Eclipse. I wanted to do that again. And now my new book, which will probably be out sometime in 2025, the title has not yet been settled upon, but it's about Mars and Martians, because this book is set at the turn of the last century, in the 1890s and the first decade of the 1900s, when scientists were seeing things on Mars that made them believe, had them convince a good portion of the public, that Mars really was inhabited by intelligent beings. The whole idea of Martians came out of science before it was science fiction. There were astronomers, but the best known was an American, Percival Lowell, who was seeing these strange lines on Mars, these incredibly straight lines that intersected at these various crossing points. He had this elaborate theory he believed they were irrigation canals that the Martians were using to grow their crops on a planet that was losing its water. And the only way they could survive was by taking meltwater from the poles in the spring in each hemisphere and bring them down to their desert oases. And he convinced a good portion of the public that this was true. Nikola Tesla, the great inventor, thought he was picking up radio signals from Mars. There was all sorts of talk about how we would communicate with them and what we should ask them because the Martians were thought to be more advanced than we were, more moral than we were. So people were becoming these guardian angels. Pastors were talking about them in church. It was a real excitement about Mars until it all fell apart. But that era, there are ripples that have come down today. Mars continues to have this aura of mystery about it, this sense that it's different from the other planets. And a lot of that comes from that era and the science fiction from that era that then inspired the scientists who took us to Mars. Of course, we haven't gotten there as humans yet, but our robots have gone there. And I'm hoping before I leave this Earth that I will see someone actually set foot on Mars. Good luck. And Musk may realize your ambition. But it's quite interesting. Earlier in the year, in January, we broadcast a portrait of H.G. Wells. And when he came to Australia in the late 30s, 
He went to Tasmania and saw something that struck him as extraordinary, as if Martians, in other words, the Brits, had arrived in ships with a totally new, different kind of technology. And it was just as if Tasmania had been invaded by Martians. And as a result, he wrote War of the Worlds. That's correct. H.G. Wells was inspired by the science of this era. And you're right. It was the slaughter of the native Tasmanians that inspired his idea of, well, what would it be for us in Britain if a more technological society landed here and tried to wipe us out? So have you finished your research? Are you just polishing now? I am polishing now. As we speak, the manuscript will be done in two weeks and handed off to my editor. Publishing is slow. The book probably will not be out until 2025, but this long journey is just about over. But it's been so much fun. I mean, learning about this whole era when there were songs about the Martians and Broadway plays about the Martians. And you could open the New York Times in 1907 and read in all seriousness about the civilization on Mars. It really, it got to that level. And I think it also speaks to the excitement today about now these exoplanets, these planets around other stars. There are thousands of them that have been found. And the big goal now is to find signs of life on those planets. And I suspect in the next 10 or 20 years, there will be a number of exoplanets where there will be hints of life, and we may see that same excitement all over again. It may again turn out to be illusory, we don't know. But there's such an innate need, I should say, to find life elsewhere, to know that we're not alone. I think we're ripe to have another excitement like happened with Mars. Great to see you again. Thank you, David. So nice to see you, Robin. David Barron from Boulder, Colorado, and American Eclipse. Such fantasies, as you said, canals on Mars. 